I'm Doug Lewin of Stoic Energy, host of the Texas Power Podcast from Renewable Energy World. You're in for a treat today. We have a great episode with Amy Hart. She's the vice president of public policy at Sunrun, the largest residential solar company in the United States and a company that is putting a major focus on the Texas market. She'll talk about her experience participating in the Distributed Energy Resource, DER Task Force, at the Public Utility Commission of Texas. Uh, They have recently met just last week and are establishing a pilot of 80 megawatts of distributed energy resources uh, within ERCOT. We'll also talk a lot on this podcast about growth for the DER market in Texas, where it's all headed even beyond the task force and how it can possibly meet the scale of the the challenge for reliability and low cost in Texas. We also talked about how the market in Texas has changed post-URI, how customers are treating reliability and resiliency in the wake of the longest outage in American history. Spoiler alert, one of the things they're asking a lot about is energy storage, and we're seeing a lot of uh, pairing of solar and storage in Texas, and she'll talk about how that's playing out in the marketplace. One of the most interesting parts of this conversation that I hope you'll find interesting too was our discussion about how to actually talk with customers about difficult concepts like virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. This was a fun conversation. I learned a lot from talking to Amy. I hope you'll learn a lot too. As always, please subscribe to the Texas Power Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey there, I'm John Ingle, Content Director for Renewable Energy World. As soon as you wrap up this amazing episode of the Texas Power Podcast, make sure to check out our podcast for the solar industry called Factor This, hosted by me. Each week, we take on solar's biggest stories with industry leaders who actually move the needle. Whether you're interested in project development, finance, technology, policy, we've got you covered with the Factor This podcast from Renewable Energy World. Click the link in the show notes to check out more than 20 episodes in our archive today. Now, back to the Texas Power Podcast. Amy Hart, welcome to the Texas Power Podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. We have so much to talk about this uh, virtual power plant uh, pilot going on at, at the PUC and just generally all the things that Sunrun is doing, the, the amazing growth the company's uh, experiencing all over the place, but particularly in Texas. We've got a lot to talk about. But I think just to ground us before we uh, jump in, can you explain to us a little bit about uh, Sunrun, you know, size of the company, where y'all operate, how active you are in Texas, and and yourself too, how long you've been with the company, what kinds of other things you've done in your career. Yeah, Doug, well, thank you for having me and what an exciting uh, new podcast. So really happy to be a part of it and um, real important timing, right, as, as this is sort of a topic du jour, not only in Texas, but lessons learned for um, other other states around the country as well. So thanks for pulling this together. Um, yeah, I'm really happy to um, to be here. We I've been with Sunrun um, for nearly eight years and um, came on board back when we were active um, and providing home solar solutions in 15 states. Uh, now we are in 22 states across the country. Uh, Sunrun started back in 2007, um, but we entered Texas in 2017. Um, it's just been really interesting to see the growth in size and in the interest in 
residential, home solar, um, and now batteries as well, and some more products, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but that's really grown over the year. We have over 720,000 customers across the country um, and over 40,000 batteries installed. Um, and this is not necessarily, it's a little bit of a humble brag, I guess, but we have, you know, we have more than five gigawatts of networked solar capacity across the country. One of the largest owners of solar assets globally and in the top three in the U.S. And the only reason that I really want to emphasize that is we strictly focus in the home solar space. And lots of times people think about, oh, residential solar, it's, you know, seven kilowatts here, it's eight kilowatts there. What can that really do for the grid? And what I think we've seen demonstrated, especially in the last year and now in Texas, is that that does add up to real electrons and real benefits. And when you think about the solar that's out there in the built environment that we have yet to use, it's pretty exciting about wh where we can go. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I've heard you say some of these numbers before, but just want to ask you, uh, obviously, Yuri and the, the winter storm here that left folks without power for three or four days was a really, obviously, um, it was a, it was a massive tectonic shift for the for the industry. Um, really, no matter where you are in the energy industry, it changed things. That is also true for solar. Can you talk a little bit about what you're hearing from customers, what you were hearing from customers in the months and, and even now, you know, year and a half or so after? Um, was there an increase in sales? Did that change the product offering? Just talk a little bit about how Yuri changed things for Sunrun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the first piece in um, in Texas, what we did learn from a household or from a family perspective, is that the solar and the solar and battery systems that were installed worked and were there to provide power at a time when it mattered most for families. And leading up to the storm as well, and leading into some of our peak power needs even this summer, um, those solar systems was able to, they were able to reduce peak demand. So when you're generating an electron from the from your rooftop, that's something you don't need from, from the grid. And so that becomes critical during those peak times. Um, but what we've seen since then is that increase, as you can imagine, and as you've heard, an increased interest in that peace of mind, that backup power. Um, maybe households that had thought, well, this would be a nice to have, maybe down the road, maybe when the technology becomes more familiar or affordable. Um, but we definitely had an increased interest in not only solar, but especially solar plus batteries. So you had that peace of mind. Um, and so that is across Texas. Uh, we have, um, we service the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the Houston area. So we're active in the ERCOT market. We also are in the Austin and San Antonio areas and all and the co-ops in between. Um, so working in some of those municipal utilities and across the board, absolute interest in, hey, what does it take to add a battery to my home? What does that do for my home? Does it provide whole home backup? What do I need to have everything powered? Or I only have a certain amount that I want to pay extra. Do I just power my critical load? So a lot of um, intelligent questions, <laughs> you know, from homeowners who are really starting to dig into what do I want um, to have that peace of mind. And, and let me let me drill down a little deeper onto that. Like what what are most people? So I think I've heard you say um, it may have been you or I believe your CEO is Mary 
Powell. Is that right? Mary Powell, who is phenomenal. She's amazing. I, I, it was one of y'all I heard say somewhere that I think it was, I think the number was something like 10% of customers used to get batteries. And now it's something more like not quite 50, but somewhere around 50% or something like that. Is that at all accurate or not quite? Well, so we, it's not accurate, like nationally, it's still, in you know, a, a small yeah. portion, yeah. but in Texas, it has certainly increased to, uh, you know, a lot of folks. And I don't know what the actual, you know, percentages are today yeah. of, of what folks are getting, but it has certainly increased over the years or, or over the, over the last year. And, and what you were just talking about, like whole home or critical loads, what are most of the customers that are getting, if there is something you can say about most customers, is there sort of a an average or usual that that folks are are they are they going one way or another on that question critical loads versus whole home that's a great question it's usually a mix Doug. Mm -hmm. you know there's if some folks say you know what i i happen to have the the spending power to do the whole home i i don't you know we even had folks who went through storm yuri who didn't know their power was out because they had that whole home backup they didn't know until they went out in the morning to walk their dog and the neighborhood was out of power but they didn't even sense anything. Um, but I, it's definitely a mix because now as folks want, hey, I just want to make sure my critical loads um, are covered. Uh, so we, we, it does, it's absolutely a mix. So um, let's, let's stick with this basic topic. Um, you've been working in Texas for, for quite a while. What, what has surprised you about your work uh, in, in Texas? What's been your experience with, with customers here? How's it different, say, than, than other parts of the country? Yeah, so it's it's been interesting. I have um, covered Texas um, as a, from our policy team, so I'm a vice president of policy, and had the opportunity to work in Texas even before um, we were in the market. And uh, one of the things that had that has really impressed me, I would say, is the interest and the ability to um, work quickly to to make adjustments to the market. But also just the sort of the refreshing approach to it's the market. If you can find a solution for customers, if you have a, an innovation that a homeowner wants or a business wants, and it works within this construct, great, go for it. Um, and that is a much different approach uh, than in a lot of the vertically integrated or the fully regulated markets um, that exist around the country. And so let me, you know, as a, as an example, lots of times we, you know, in the solar space, there's lots of conferences and in the energy space, lots of panel discussions. And over the years, what's the value of solar or what should the value be, uh, you know, for net metering or for anything that's exported? That conversation for the vast majority of Texas is, well, what does the market value it? Right. What are the value of those electrons? Find a retail electricity provider who values that and good on you. And so that's an interesting conversation instead of having these back and forth battles over should you have rooftop solar in a given state. Right. It's just we need as many customer driven solutions. And so that's one thing that's just been different from a policy standpoint that I think Texas should be um, and is, quite honestly, we're proud of. Um, it's refreshing to work with customers. I know I've heard our sales teams as well talk about um, the difference in working with homeowners um, and households because you're used to making decisions about your energy choices different from in other states. So even though there it can be confusing and there's still lots of issues and we're always trying to improve that customer experience, the the fact that you're not just 
in a state where it might be more paternalistic. It's like, don't worry about your energy. We've got one company who takes care of it. We'll go (laughs) raise your rates however we want and don't worry about it. There's more engagement in energy in general, which means there's been more engagement on what those solutions can be and having them customer focused. Yeah, that is, that is also one of the things I love about working in Texas is there there really is this culture of competition. And if customers want it, like we wouldn't accept in other areas of our life that there's only one hamburger chain or one grocery store or one, you know, kind of car or whatever. So why wouldn't we have customers pick from different kinds of energy and how much they want to be involved in that? Now, interestingly, I think there is kind of a a sweet spot, right? Where like, yes, customers want to make choices. Yes, customers should be empowered. And at the same time, customers are very busy. They've got to get, you know, their, their kids off wherever they're going or they're busy with work or variety of all these different things. So this is, I think, one of the interesting things about where markets are headed is where customers can make choices, but there's automation built in once they've made those choices to help optimize energy use or control for costs or increase reliability or or whatever that that might be. So I don't know if there's more you want to say about that, about how Texas may be a good place to kind of test that out and bring that forward more than in other places where, like you said, it's like there, there's one option and that's just what you're going to go with. Yeah. And, and look, one option and, and even to the stretch of having a conversation about how you can finance your own solar system. Right. And that's what other states are debating. Right. Wisconsin is right now in the midst of utilities saying you can't finance a system how you want on your own property. So um, I, that's I love talking about solutions in in Texas. Like we need to move past that. And to your point, Doug, making it, we won't, you know, we're on 4% of the addressable rooftops in the country um, for solar. And so in order to really leverage this as a resource, making it automated for the customer, making it easy to have um, a company like a Sunrun or a third-party provider enroll your systems to benefit the grid, but that has to be seamless yep. for the customer. And there has to be those protections to make sure that when you need that backup power, you're going to have it as well. Um, that's the only way that that this will will work and that will get customers to buy in is it, it's got to be easy. So, so keeping with that very same theme, let's also talk about electric vehicles. I was really excited when I heard about the partnership uh, between Sunrun and Ford. And I want, I want you to talk a little bit about what that partnership is and what that means for, for customers. And then once you kind of describe that, I think there's something here with what we were just talking about, how to make this seamless for customers. Like if you've got solar panels and a battery in your garage and an electric vehicle and a smart thermostat, this stuff has to be, you can't have people constantly picking up their phone, trying to figure out when to charge their car. This has got to be automated and easy. So first talk a little bit about the partnership and what that is, and then let's talk about how this all works for customers. Yeah, absolutely. So we are really excited. You know, certainly Sunrun has expanded our product offering um, over the years, and we're leading that energy transition where it's we're not just a solar company, right? We're leading different product offerings. And specifically, as you mentioned, the partnership with Ford on their F-150, um, the first vehicle of its kind to have a bi-directional charger, um, which means 
You've got your electric vehicle in your garage. It's got a battery, a really big battery <laughs> that can power your home for three days. Um, and so now you can have a bi-directional charger in your home that not only charges up the car, but if the power goes out, you can provide backup power to the home for, um, for those, for those outage events. And it works perfectly with solar. We have so many folks who are saying, look, I either already have solar. Now I want to create a vehicle that runs on the sun essentially, or dude, I love this Ford F-150. And how can I make sure if there's prolonged outages, I can continue to charge that um, with, with solar. So it really works. It works well together. Really um, fortunate to have that opportunity to work with Ford. You know, the initial stage, right, is, is making sure that it can provide that backup power to the home. But you know more than anyone else where this is going is testing out improving the vehicle to grid. So now when you start to aggregate all of these resources um, on a feeder or in a certain load area, um, you can provide some um, some great resilience solutions for the grid as well. Yeah. And, and just to put a finer point on it, you mentioned the big battery. Uh, if memory serves, it's about the standard one is 98 kWh. That's enough to keep a house going, depending on the house and what loads are hooked up to and all that kind of stuff, two to three days. Uh, maybe even more if it's just critical circuits. And there's a there's an enhanced package you can get on the F-150 that's like 130 kWh. I mean, that is, you know, most batteries that people are buying standalone are what, 13, 15, something like yeah. that kWh. So to have 98 or 130 um, in your vehicle is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, some serious resilience. And I think when folks are now looking at different options, um, right, you're not going to maybe make the change right right away. But if, if you are a Texan who loves F-150s and you're saying, hey, I, you know, I do want to make sure that I have a little peace of mind um, just in case, you know, then that might be part of the, the calculation yeah. when you look at your next vehicle or your next investment in your home. Totally. So there's a lot more we could talk about with resilience there. Maybe we'll come back to that. But I actually, I think that's a, a good segue into talking about virtual power plants because there's, there's a resilience play there. The power goes out. I can keep critical circuits running in my house, keep everybody safe, comfortable. There's also the... 99, hopefully 99.99% of days, hopefully, where there's no problem on the grid, but there's value there in those solar panels, in the battery, whether that battery's in the car or standalone in the garage, either way. Uh, Texas is now beginning a pilot. It should start early next year to get to 80 megawatts of uh, distributed energy resources or virtual power plants. I know Sunrun has been very involved. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement there? Your um, th what, what you think the prospects for that are? Uh, and, then, and then I think where I want to go next, and I can, once you answer those, we can come back to this or you can just answer it now is like the, but the, the market economics piece, you were talking about customers and markets and Texas has this very um, evolved energy market. How do we get DERs actually into that market? And is this is this pilot going to be a step towards that? Yeah, I think um, to, to go back to the first part and then we'll we'll head into that into the task force and this and this new pilot, which I think really is it, it's an exciting and very critical first step to recognize 
the value of DERs like home solar and batteries. Um, but to your point, first of all, Texas is not alone in wanting to deal with resiliency issues. So thinking about the um, VPPs, virtual power plants, rooftop solar, whatever you want to call it, you know, um, the aggregated DERs, um, there's the one piece, which is for the backup, that resiliency um, for the homes. And that can be critical. We've seen that in Puerto Rico and Florida most recently. But the second piece is then how can it help? The other part of how it helps the grid is in the other resiliency, which is addressing peak load or other grid services. And that's what we've seen even in California over Labor Day weekend, where you know we had calls for flex alerts, right? We had a, a call like, hey, we need people to not use the use the grid. And so we had thousands of customers and thousands of batteries. We had over 18,000 batteries be able to export to the grid during those flex alerts to be able to provide gigawatt hours um, to, to be able to reduce those peak loads. So that's the piece where you're like, you've got that battery sitting in your home for the peace of mind for the backup. But what about the other 99% of the time? Why not leverage that and use those resources for the grid, for the market, use those electrons. When you do that, and we can talk about how Texas is going to do that, but when you are able, or you create a pathway to leverage those resources and share those electrons, you can also lower the cost of batteries for the homeowner. And that becomes critical when you think about how communities in Texas and communities in, in different parts of the country experience these outage events in different ways. You don't, you know, if people don't have access um, to solar and batteries and they're not going to be able to leave a community, you know, that you just experience it in a different way, depending on your income level and depending on where you live. So this is going to be a way to use the market, use a market driven solution where you're paying for those services to make solar and batteries more accessible to everyone. So for me, that's what that's what like I think is is a really interesting and I hate to use the term win-win, but um in this case I really believe that to be the case. Yeah, absolutely and it's it's a whole new thing for folks to think about. This is not something we've ever thought about before, I don't think, when we've gone to buy a car, right? You don't think about, well, I'm going to buy this car and now there's there's this a, there's this value in the car that I might be able to to get back and how does that change the calculus of how much you can spend? I mean, you can almost, I think you can almost think of it like if you are an Uber or Lyft driver and you say, okay, I buy this car and I'm going to drive this much. So I'm going to get this much value back from the car, but here's like, you're not driving it. You're putting it into the, I mean, you're going to drive it of course, but when it's in the garage, it's plugged in and you have some automated setting that says above a certain price, go ahead and take, some power out of that battery. Not enough that I can't drive later, but you know, within whatever band I specify. And now you're going to get paid for that. It's, it's kind of like, I mean, even I who think about this a lot, have a hard time getting my head around that and what that would mean for the economics of my family and what I can afford for a car. So this is going to be a whole new thing that people, I mean, I was going to say have to get used to, but honestly, like it should be, you're getting paid. So it should be something we get used to pretty easily, hopefully. Well, and and what's interesting is hopefully what, you know, learning from how we've already enrolled customers. This is this is something that's done in the Northeast in a lot of states where there's bring your own device programs, um, which enroll battery systems. We participate in ISO New England in their wholesale market, which I'm sure we can we can chat a little bit more about. But 
it's finding the ways that we have, we already have conversations at a kitchen table with a customer. So it's talking about, well, hey, if you enroll your battery, it now is reduced by this amount, or you'll get this amount every year if you enroll in this program. Some people may say, no, thanks. I want the battery to myself. And it's always going to be the customer's choice. And others are like, oh, yeah, I'll save. I'll save some money on my battery. Sign me up. Happy to share my electrons with my neighbors. And um, so using this, I guess, the, the skills of, of those who know marketing and, um, and, and the companies to, to drive that interaction, I think it, again, Texas is really well suited because customers are used to having those conversations already. So let's talk a little bit more about the the pilot. So you're on the task force. Uh, there's 20 members of the task force, the ADER, Aggregated Distributed Energy Resource Task Force. For the uh, policy wonks out there who want to know more about this, you can Google PUC interchange and you put the number 53911, I believe is the docket number there. I love, you know, the number, Doug. You know, this one is particularly easy because it is a resilience thing that 911 is the docket number. I don't know if somebody at the PUC was like being sneaky or if that just happened by coincidence, but that's a really easy one to remember, 53911. So you can find all the filings that are in there and the report that the task force has put together, lots of materials there to to dig into. Uh, But you alluded to this a second earlier, you said we can talk about it more and I do want to talk about it more. Like how, how... will so this is 80 it's 80 megawatts there's a limit of 40 i think that can be in ancillary services or non-spin right like how how does an aggregator which i think sunrun is going to i think going to participate as some kind of aggregator right so like how do you think about where those where those revenue streams are coming from um and then how you talk to a customer about i mean this is kind of what you were just talking about with new england but in a texas context how are you going to describe that to a customer? So I would say, um, so first of all, the the uh, Public Utility Commission of Texas, I, I just want to pause and um, thank them for recognizing and moving forward on this idea as a pilot. Um, our CEO that you referenced, Mary Powell, always talks about the idea of radical collaboration and that it takes all of the stakeholders, the market monitors, the commissions, the utilities, and the industry to come together. Um, This is a perfect example of radical collaboration. This docket started in 2022, and we are gonna have a pilot that's up and running before the end of the year. Nine months to get a pilot started, that is what every single other state commission should be looking at. How do we bring people together to just try a pilot Let's work out the kinks. Let's figure out how to do this um, because time is wasting. And so, first of all, like for everybody that was part of it, it moved quickly. And I think the understanding was we're going to try phase one and it's going to be pretty darn narrow. It is paving a way for DERs to participate in non spin in the ancillary services market of ERCOT. So, like one section of one section of ERCOT. And That was sort of the understanding at the beginning that that would be phase one. Um, And with the idea that hopefully identifying based on what utilities choose to participate or not, what are those barriers and then how to expand from there, but really testing out what happens when we export those electrons and what's the response from customers, what's the, how do we work with the utilities um, or the, the distribution utilities. And so I just really excited to be a part of that task force and that conversation and, and really problem solving. 
of like, all right, let's just get, let, let's get this going. Um, it was really refreshing and um, really because of the leadership of um, Commissioner McAdams and Commissioner um, Glotfelty. So um, just really excited to see that move forward. I just want to say plus one on that. I think that the, the commission, this is an area where they have really excelled. Um, and, and, and to your point, I used to do, uh, regulatory affairs for a company called clear result. Amy, you and I knew each other then, but, um, you know, I worked in commissions all over the country. Yeah. Nine, nine months from the idea of it to beginning a pilot is pretty unheard of. So it is, it is very important to celebrate success and, and well, we will see the pilot hasn't started yet. Hopefully it'll be success, but just, you're right. The process and the collaboration, it's, it's really been remarkable. Well, and also not to be afraid that it might not be a success or we know we're going to find issues when we launch it and we're not trying to be everything for everyone and thinking about, well, okay, how should we also provide frequency and volt bar and what's like, let's just, we're going to get going. And there's a recognition we're going to, we're going to learn um, and expand. And so that's, I, I, yeah, I just think it's been great to bring everybody together. So then back to your question of what does this look like? Um, the first piece is also you have to participate and enroll through a retail electricity provider. So again, that's a relationship that your residential and small business customers already have or are already used to that conversation. And so some folks will choose their own retail electricity provider for different reasons. Sunrun has already, you know, in the past we've partnered and have partnerships with different retail electricity providers for buyback rates of solar. And so that's going to be the natural conversation of, well, you know, who, who wants to participate in this, in this program, who wants to, you know, work with and enroll some of our existing solar and battery customers, but also future solar and battery customers um, into the program. That will be a conversation of, I think the market will find out what's going to get customers over that threshold and entice them enough um, to participate. And that will be part of the chicken or egg issue. In other states, you know, it's a, it's a different solution where you have proceedings, you have regulatory proceedings determining we are going to have an upfront enrollment price of X dollar amounts that will go to the customer. We'll have a monthly benefit of X amount that goes to the customer and, you know, this will be the export value. And so that's usually determined in a proceeding with a lot of back and forth between the utilities and stakeholders, et cetera. Um, and then you kind of cross your fingers and hope that's the, the magic dollar amount. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And so this, I think people will be able to adjust in real time in the market to see what the uptake will be. So, so to be clear, if I'm hearing you right, very excited, this is happening, that the PUC has moved so fast to get this started. It is narrow, and your hope is that the learnings will happen quickly enough that, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so just tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but that, that hopefully it can be expanded, whether into other ancillary service areas or other, other areas where there, there is value. I mean, this is one of the hardest things with, with distributed energy resources. There's so many different sort of slices of the pie where it brings value, and you can't always necessarily find where that value is in the market to be able to deliver it. So I kind of like this approach of like finding one, but then incumbent on that would then be, you've got to then find the second and the third and the fourth and keep delivering that value to the customers who are willing to sign up for those. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
we've already identified different um, questions, right? That we we think we've heard from co-op utilities, municipal utilities who don't operate in that same way, that may not see or be able to enroll their customers. Well, what is the right program in a municipal utility? Is it more to just help address their peak demand days when they get four CP char- you know, four CP charges? Is it, you know, so so how are we going to make sure that if you are a customer out in El Paso Electric, which is a regulated utility, right? How are you going to participate it there? And so right now it's a voluntary program. So that we're going to have some utilities that choose to participate in some territories and some that don't. And so hopefully we figure out the learnings and how do we bring this this across the across the state? Um, and I think to your second point of learning what are there obstacles for ancillary services, but there might be some other easier ways to enroll customers. I mean, we have the whole rucking program in Texas where you've got base load power plants that are staying on just to provide that reliability. Um, could we use DERs to be there? And to be called on for reliability, aka capacity, like whatever you want to call it, like that—that's a great use. Now you don't have these these the power plants who may not want to be on when it's not economical. Maybe reduce that requirement by relying on the DERs that are just sitting there anyway. So I—that's my hope. Um, maybe it's expanding the utilities budget for existing demand response programs, because right now all we're talking about is that export of electrons. And there's a whole host of solutions. It might be easier to just, you know, to be able to think about it from a demand response perspective of passive demand response, right? We're just going to take load off the grid. So I hope that this is just a venue to get the conversation started. But I just don't want to miss the point that Texas has made the step that other states are just starting to try to grapple with, which is, is there a value of DERs? And Texas is like, oh, yes, there is. Let's create a program. Let's go. And let's figure it out as we go. And it's smart on multiple levels. But one of the reasons it's smart is that we already have something like three or four thousand megawatts of DERs on the system already. When you count all the, there's a lot of generators out there now, the the small gas generators and that kind of stuff at people's premises, plus solar and storage, especially after URI, big increase there. So this is an 80 megawatt pilot when there's already three or 4,000 out there. And I think what Commissioner McAdams and and Commissioner Glotfelty and and the other commissioners as well are seeing is this is a really big number. It's going to get bigger. Are we going to are we going to somehow bring that value into the market or is this going to stay outside the market? And 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 if you do that, then you're all this investment that customers are bringing doesn't bring down the system costs for the other customers that don't have those DERs. The idea is to try to bring that value in, lower the cost so that even if you don't have solar storage, even if you don't have a generator, you're benefiting because your neighbor or somebody you'll never meet does. Um, That's exactly right. I want to just explain very briefly two things because I've made a promise to our audience that we're for professionals, but we are also going to be accessible to non-energy professionals. So you said... For CP, I'll do a real quick explanation and then you please do. Yeah, and you then you correct it. me yeah. if I get it wrong or add something <laughs> to it. Um, this, but it's a really important concept. So, because um, it actually has a huge impact on, on our market right now that I don't think is widely understood. Commercial and industrial customers, roughly half their bill is a demand charge, 
half as energy. So whatever the highest amount they use, they get charged for that. But the way it's calculated is whatever the highest peak on the system, thus 4CP is coincident peak. So it's coincident with the peak on the system, not just what they're setting at their building. They take the four increments where the system hits a peak, 15 minute increments, June, July, August, September, add up what they used at that building, divide it, divide that number by four, that sets their demand charge all year long. So if you're a really big customer and you can reduce your usage by a whole lot during those four increments, you can actually reduce your bill by 10, 20, 30, sometimes even more percent. Um, the co-ops and the munis to ERCOT appear as one big meter. So the 4CP applies to Austin Energy, to CPS, to co-ops. So what Amy was referring to there when she said they, you know, the co-ops might use DERs to reduce their 4CP, that's a good example where a co-op could save members for all their customers by enrolling even a small subset of their customers to participate in this kind of uh, aggregated DER program. Anything more you wanted to say about that or? No, I think that actually is super helpful for me as well. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, but that it gives a finer point on why municipal utilities and co-op utilities in Texas have a, have a different um, approach to a DER type program than maybe in the in the market areas. And so I think being able to identify where those issues are and suggest solutions to them. Um, certainly the commission, you know, that I, that's not their bandwidth, but if you're a legislator from a, a certain area and you want to make sure your customers um, can have access, not only have access to solar and batteries, but also um, to increase the affordability um, to it, I think you would be, you would be definitely interested in that. And I think it's getting out of the mindset. Just one more point on this, Doug, is I think especially from the um, Muni utilities such as CPS or Austin Energy that have consistently been leaders on clean energy and wanted to be leaders is it's thinking beyond the traditional, should we create an incentive program for batteries, right? It is actually, we don't, we can get beyond that. Let's create a pathway to leverage those values of those solar and battery systems. That's an entirely different conversation that can help um, dem um, demonstrate the um, lowered cost for all ratepayers. So I think that's that's super exciting, and we just again learning through phase one of the task force, but knowing this is meant to identify future opportunities. Um, we'll hopefully be looking for those. Amazing. And then one other term you said RUCs, which are reliability unit commitments. I won't go too deep into this, but um, that is basically and you described this. It is it is a program where the Public Utility Commission and ERCOT, specifically ERCOT's really the one that sort of administers this, they will tell power plant owners, you must be available. That's reliability unit commitment. You must commit, even if you weren't going to be in the market, you've got to be there and you'll be paid for that. So Amy, you were saying it is possible that distributed energy resources could provide that same, it's intended really to be a buffer for the system, sort of a backup. Um, there's no reason why distributed energy resources couldn't, couldn't provide that. And then you're in a situation where instead of the power plant owners being paid, customers are being paid. And with these really high bills we're experiencing in Texas, which aren't likely to let up, that, that might uh, be very attractive to, to, to policymakers yeah. and to consumers. And I think it's a, it's a shift in 
how we think about calling for help for peak load. Um, you know, you, you've heard a lot of people talking about the exhaustion of getting the texts of please reduce your do, reduce your power and um, large large businesses, ones that are, have participated and know how to reduce their peak load or enroll in those programs that you get paid to do that, get paid to do it. And homeowners are asking to volunteer to do it. They're being, and so they're being this asked is that volunteer, right? They're, yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they, they aren't necessarily <laughs> volunteering. They're they're hearing that plea and trying to do the right thing, but there is a there's a great question there, right? Like why, if, if the big customers are being paid, why shouldn't the small customers get paid? Yeah. And so, and, and I think in the past there hasn't, you know, there's been the demand response programs, um, but let's, yeah, let's expand that. And so I, I think that's, this is one of the first steps is creating the DER pilot program to show it is possible to compensate customers for them also sharing their resource with the grid. Excellent. So the next thing I want to talk about is actually it's again this is this has been fun. I mean it, the one thing kind of flows to the next like you this this question of communication. So yes, customers are hearing more and more about the grid. They're thinking and talking more and more about the grid. They're getting these alerts. I think we had 3 of them over the summer in Texas. Obviously California had had a bunch. Um so people are thinking about this stuff. But then we say Hey, would you like to participate in an aggregated distributed energy resource pilot? Hopefully nobody says those words to a customer. It rolls I- off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> or even better, a virtual power plant. I had the opportunity actually to listen in to a focus group of people who are absolutely not energy industry people. And they asked them about all these terms and were like, hey, what do you think of this term? What do you think of that term? And virtual power plant was actually worse than distributed energy resource. Somebody was like, you mean like I've got to put a headset on like it's virtual reality? And I was like, no, 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 no. That's not what we mean. Um, Wait, but is but, meta now in the energy business? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so some of these terms we use that we get so used to, we're like, oh, yeah, virtual power plant. That's great to the 99% of the population that doesn't think about this stuff as much as we do, probably more than 99%, um, it sometimes not only rings hollow, but actually sets them back. Actually, demand response is another one. We had somebody in the um, focus group said, "Demand." so you're demanding that I respond? Like, no, that's not what we meant, right? But like, so this is how people are hearing these things. So, so my question to you is like, I, I'm wondering if y'all at, at Sunrun, I know you're a policy person, you're not, you're not marketing communication. So don't, don't feel bad if you don't have a good answer to this, but I am curious, like if, if that's discussed at the company, how do we talk to folks about these? It's kind of, you guys are doing solar, so it's a little bit different, but when you get into these pilots with distributed energy resources, what do you say to customers that, that doesn't just send them running the other direction. Yeah. Well, and first of all, Doug, what I will tell you is just because I don't work in comms and marketing does not mean I don't provide unsolicited um, slogan ideas all the time, which are rejected flat out. I want to hear that. (laughs) But before we're done with this, you're going to need to share some of those, Amy. Yeah. Um, But what I, you know, I think the Allowing that conversation that, you know, what's worked at a kitchen table. It, and for us, you're exactly right. It is, uh, you know, even distributed, distributed resource like home solar plus batteries 
we use the term rechargeable batteries, which, you know, home rechargeable batteries, um, but your home solar plus batteries and then sharing those, that power with the grid. I think some of those terms, I think that's our, our, our one-on-one conversation with homeowners. Um, we, along with everybody else, have struggled with what are the best terms for so policymakers can wrap their head around it. I think we struggle with, with that for sure, you know, on, on our side of how can you picture this? And one of the pieces, and for those of you listening in the, you know, in the industry, I still firmly believe that bringing the policymakers out to a home, to your warehouse, like makes a huge difference. Because now they're like, oh, now I get it. That's the battery that's on the wall. Oh, that's the inverter. That's the so. Even though you would think that's not needed, I still think now it still is essential because I, I I think we still have to get over this hump of does it does it exist and will will we show up? So I'm 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 basically Doug. I'm saying all ears. You know I'm all ears. Um. So whatever ideas you have, but it is absolutely something we've got to um work on. Yeah, one of the things in that same focus group that sort of emerged as something people liked. And this wasn't this is different because it wasn't like a kitchen table where it was the idea wasn't to sell something that was more like and not not that that's all you guys do, but it, this wasn't a sales situation. This was more a how do you understand these concepts, you know, in in a grid context. Again, people thinking about these things more after after February. One of the things that really resonated w- with people was local sources of power. Saying, you know, for most of uh, the history of electric generation and the grid, it's been big plants far away from where you would see them. Now we've got more local sources of power closer to where that power is used. Uh, a lot of people liked community-based power, community-based energy. Um, those kinds of terms seem to do a lot better than distributed energy resource or VPP or God forbid <laughs> demand response. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more more thoughts on on that as we move forward. And I and honestly, I think some things will just shake out. But I I would also, even though you're approaching it from the perspective of how do we talk about it at a higher level, it is still that kitchen table conversation. Like, let's take those lessons learned that I'd like. The, you know, folks that that have those conversations, I learned so much from of what are the, the questions that every homeowner asks when they're first getting into solar is what every single commissioner, every single reporter is going to ask. So we could learn a lot from from that selling, too. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to ask you, there's there's a question I try to ask. I don't always get it in, but I try to ask this question of every guest. of What's the one energy policy you think would have the biggest impact to increase reliability? lower system costs and reduce pollution. But as like a lead into answering that question, I know you have some thoughts about the the most ideal policies to grow these local sources of power, these distributed energy resources. So why don't, can you talk, before you get to the big question, talk about some of like the smaller ways we can increase DERs and then maybe give me like what you think is the the biggest one. Is that, does that sound good? I would love it because I love the like small uh, forgotten, unsexy topics of interconnection, permitting, zoning. I love that stuff. <laughs> um, so literally, and, and we have so many city leaders um, in Texas, especially that are reaching out saying, hey, we want to be able to lead on clean energy. What can we do? And um, for us, there are significant delays 
when, and, and it's not the fault of a city necessarily, but it's just the sheer volume of more people being interested in solar, solar and batteries, and it's still being new to cities. We go in and put in a permit and it takes a long time in some cases to get approval. That means real money. That means customers get nervous and back out. Uh, that means you're adding more um, permit time for your staff at the city. Um, so all this being said, there is a um, solar app, which is a solution out there to streamline solar permitting. Um, Houston is actually piloting it. Um, so we hope to see how that goes, but it's really to provide, look, every single one of our systems of a residential system, a certain size, certain equipment, line drawing, you've got your, your NEC code, your national electric code, right, that you have to meet. You've got your building specs you have to meet. Those can get approved pretty darn quickly and they still get inspected at the end to ensure safety. So if cities are looking at, hey, what could we do? Should we start an incentive program? Should we do such and such? That is the easiest, lowest cost way to help lower cost for solar and spur um, quick development. Um, so it's you can easily Google solar app, APP, um, and it's a really great resource. Um, so, and then on the other side. Hey, real quick, before you go to the other side, I just want to just, just jump in and just make this point because I think it's really important for policymakers and for advocates and whoever's working in the space to remember that it's not always about adding something. Sometimes removing something is the best way to accelerate a market or deliver benefits to customers. And I think this is a good example of that, you know, a, a, like really trying to make it to remove the barriers, to make it easier to interconnect. Like they, you actually don't necessarily have to do anything. You just need to remove a couple steps with, with all the safety, right? You still got to obviously follow code, but like you said, it's, yep. it's standard. These are things that are done over and over and over again. There's no reason to layer complexity upon complexity. So anyway, I, I appreciate that. That's one of the things you mentioned. I just wanted to put a finer point on it, that sometimes removing the barriers even more important than adding something else. Yeah, thank you. And and from a city perspective, um, you know, uh, I think permits are a little bit, I'll show a little bit different than in other states. I'll share one example um, from the Great Lakes states in Illinois, um, where there's a county we had to go it's now changed again because of, you know, work one on one to learn. Um, we would go in person and you could apply for one permit at a time. So you would wait in line in person, get to the front of the line, get one permit, go to the back of the line, wait for the second one. We're talking a state that has thousands of systems going in. Right. In addition to all of your other permits. So um, that's just a for instance of we know in this day and age. 2022, we can improve. <laughs> we can improve this customer service and also just staff time for not only for the solar companies, but maybe more importantly for, for cities as well. Um, and then on the utility side, just the interconnection process as well. And so that is, you know, there's timelines that are established by the, by the Texas um, Public Utility Commission on how long it should take. But we know as volume increases, it takes a lot more time, but we need whether it's a one of the distribution utilities or a muni or a co-op, like we're seeing timelines get pushed really far, which means weeks, months before we get approval to build. And then another time after we build the project to get it approved and get it installed. So imagine having solar on your roof for a month waiting 
to get it turned on to produce power. And so, again, I think it's just we've got an increased volume, but um, let's get together and figure out um, some ways to to address and address those gaps. Um, so, but that's the that's where the rubber hits the road, right? That's where I talk to our teams every day. Um, just had a conversation with our folks in Texas um, yesterday about the areas where we need some some help. So um, that can certainly be helpful. Great. And what about is there if if I force you to pick one energy policy that you have the biggest impact? Would it be one of those? Because it might be one of those things. It might. It, that's that's valid, but it might be something else. I'm curious. What do you think? Yeah, I I do think honestly, um, while we're learning, and I'm and I'm very optimistic and appreciative of the the phase one of this pilot program for DERs, I do think some sort of easy to enroll, um, bring your own device type program that can reduce peak load or provide capacity. Like something that's easy to enroll, the non-spin ancillary is a very specific, narrowly tailored um, solution for DERs. But I think we have an op- there's 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 an easier program design. I think that's still out there for Texas. That's that's kind of in my head what I'm envisioning, and I'm trying not to stick a square peg in a round hole because Texas is different than other states. But I do think that there's there's going to be a solution that's going to allow an easier enrollment and then compensation for customers um, to really maximize these, these resources. Yeah, agreed. And I'm really excited to see how that task force evolves and, and, and what comes out of the mm-hmm. pilot. To, I, I think we're going to get there. I think Texas's combination of, maybe I'm too optimistic here, but I think the combination of the uh, sort of love for, for markets and competition with customers sort of wanting to be energy independent and things like that. I think it's a, it's it's the right mix to see this really scale. So I'm excited about it. I'm going to ask you uh, one more question. And then if you have anything else you want to share before we end, you can do that too. There's another question I'd like to ask um, uh, every guest on the podcast. What is something that is conventional wisdom among energy people that you think is wrong or, or commonly misunderstood? Here's what I think. Am I almost 20 years in the industry is what is wrong is thinking that you and you alone have the answer. And it could be that you, whatever company you're working for, whatever your experience is, you're going to come into a meeting, you've got the answer, you're going to speak <laughs> and and continue to speak until everybody believes you um, or agrees with you. I think um, we can learn from pausing, listening, being humble in our approach to this, in in approach to the solutions. It's going to take a whole bunch of solutions. It's going to take us collaborating together and also listening to people who haven't been at the table for 10 years, 20 years, and um, think that they have the answer. So it's not like a technical fix other than let's just all take a breath and and work together on this and, and approach this with some humbleness that we can all learn from each other. And a lot of folks have not been at the table and part of the solution. We need to make sure um, that we have an energy future that works for everyone, which means we hand over the microphone, which I know is a bad way to end the podcast. I, no, I, I love that answer. And, and as a matter of fact, in the episode with Pat Wood, we talked about how the PUC, the last time the market was redesigned, we're in the middle of this redesign right now. But the last time it was redesigned, they went out to 16 different cities, listened to people help them understand what the electric grid was all about, and then listen to what they wanted from the system. And it was exactly that, that humility, that listening to what other people have to say, 
they're ab- it's it's absolutely correct that nobody can possibly have all the solutions. We've got to go out there and and listen to other people that are that are colleagues or within the industry and also listen to people that aren't. <laughs> a lot of the best solutions yeah. are going to come from there because they they actually are really smart and know what they want. So I do hope I do hope we see a lot more of that. I think that's a great answer. I think that's a great place to leave it unless there's anything else you want to say before we end, Amy. I don't think so. I just am really thankful for the opportunity to have the the conversation. I think there's a lot of folks in Texas that are doing the work. And in this industry, there's a lot of folks who are, you know, uh, who talk a lot about what should be done and where we should be going. But there's folks who are making it happen um, every day. And I'm really excited for where things are going in, in Texas. And thanks, Doug, for leading the conversation. I want to thank our guest, Amy Hart from Sunrun for joining us today. That was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I hope you'll follow along with the Texas Power podcast as we continue to dive into issues that are in front of the market right now at ERCOT and throughout the state of Texas. There's a lot going on with this distributed energy resource task force, market redesign, rising costs for customers, and much, much more. We'll cover it all here in future weeks. Please rate us. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information and for show notes, please go to renewableenergyworld.com. Thank you for being with us.